Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're trying something again new this week where people who uh, log in can call us and we can, uh, if they have questions or comments or whatever, that we can let them come on the air with us on the show. We started this morning with a show on uh, Exodus and we went through Exodus chapter 1. And of course Exodus is is just as important as the gospel because so much of the gospel of Moses was repeated by Christ. Christ said to love thy neighbor as thyself and Moses said love thy neighbor as thyself and Christ said love thy enemy and Moses said give drink to your enemy and uh, of course they both agreed that covetousness was a bad thing and we see that throughout the New Testament with Paul and Peter saying you know through covetous practices they'll make you make merchandise of you etc and uh, they you will curse your children and these are prophecies of Peter and Paul and uh, and of course Christ and Moses who were telling us that being covetous desiring things at the expense of our neighbor is a bad thing and just briefly you know a lot of people think i've actually seen people talking like this i mean even the comedian george carlin was talking about coveting Desiring to have a car like your neighbor is not coveting. Desiring to have a wife like your neighbor's is not coveting. It's desiring to have your neighbor's wife. That's coveting. Desiring to have your neighbor's house. That's coveting. Desiring to have your neighbor labor for you for free. That is coveting. To desire any benefit from men who exercise authority by taking away from your neighbor is coveting. That's a, To set up a system based on taking away from your neighbor so that you can have stuff for free is the very definition of being covetous. And that system is a covetous practice. And so... Understanding that or realizing, I mean, you can't hardly argue against it. I, I, if anybody wants to, the number is 319 Because <laughs> I'd love to hear your arguments against it. I was just working on a page before we started the show. Stoicism, I always had a page there for a little while. And then I, I came across some recent quotes, Stoics and, and biblical statements and words that we find in the Bible uh, concerning what is a part of what we would call the philosophy of Stoicism. And most of the persecution of early Christians were by people who thought they were Stoics. So understanding what Stoicism is, is probably as much as, as important as understanding what Christianity is. And, and if not, at least we can say that by studying Stoicism and comparing it to Christianity and the differences between the two, 
we can come up with a better understanding of Christianity. Or we could. But of course it all depends on whether we are willing to see the light <laughs> of, of our uh, view. I just changed the page so if you've already loaded Stoicism. Uh, I, I, I just changed the, the table of contents. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic. Antonius Pius was a Stoic. And uh, they claimed at least to be Stoics. And yet they had a terrible record of persecuting Christians. What about Stoicism was against what Christianity is all about? Uh, Stoics were not supposed to be materialistic. They were not supposed to be uh, carried away by their emotions. Uh, they they had emotions. They just weren't carried away by their emotions. They considered virtue to the, be the absolutely essential uh, characteristic of mankind to develop. And they believed in the law of nature and nature's God, which are, are uh, the the law of nature is equivalent to the divine will or the will of God. So, why would we have any conflict with Stoics? In reality, there were many Stoics who became early Christians. Polybius was a Stoic. Uh, early C had uh, Stoic philosophy uh, mixed in with the things that he taught. He was from Corinth originally. But, yeah, he had studied Stoicism and he saw it as a, a valid thing. Stoicism goes back at least to Zeno and you can, you can, you read a lot of their quotes and it sounds great. But yet, some of the most prominent Stoics of the time, like Marcus Aurelius and Antonio Pius and others who claimed to have the Stoic philosophies, just absolutely hated Christians <laughs> and made laws that caused them to be persecuted even unto death. What was it about Christians that upset them? Well, that's not about, that is not what today's program about is so we're not going to discuss that but we will we will eventually get into it in great depth because some things that we're going to tell you about christianity is probably going to upset you as much as christians upset marcus aurelius But, yet, if you actually knew what Christianity was, I saw several advertisements today about Jewish communities that the best kept secret in the Jewish community is what Christianity was all about because there's a lot of Jews or people, you know, who claim, whatever a Jew is, claim the heritage of being Jewish either by bloodline or by religious background or whatever and they're now supposedly becoming Christians. And that would be great if they were becoming real Christians. <laughs> and I'm sure some of them will. Uh, I would like to see all Christians become real Christians. All Jews become real Christians. All Muslims become real Christians. But of course, if they did, like Paul says, there would be no more Jew, Christian, or uh, Muslim, or Greek, or uh, Roman, or U.S. citizen, or anything... They would just be following the way of Christ. And if Marcus Aurelius had followed the way of Christ, he would not have been so disappointed in his rule. 
Marcus Aurelius was considered to be the golden age of the Roman Empire by many. They they slapped that label on him. Yet, at, towards the end, he was absolutely ashamed of what he had done during his golden age. He had caused the deaths of tens of thousands and thousands of people. And uh, so he actually felt really bad about it because that, that really isn't a part of the Stoic philosophy to kill tens of thousands of people <laughs> or cause their deaths. But uh, that's the amazing thing about people who want to lump people into particular religions or particular philosophies or theologies or or ideologies. You know, they carry around these ideologies and these labels as if, oh, I'm a Stoic or I'm a Methodist or I'm a Seventh-day Adventist or I'm a Jehovah Witness. But it really doesn't define a person. It's it's something they put on, like a outfit or a clothing or something, you know, where they look look like something. But you strip away the clothing and strip away the pretense, and you're back down to the original individual. And like I said in this morning program, only individuals can find the kingdom. Of God and His righteousness. Groups don't find it. And that's why the early church was composed of free assemblies. The early church in the wilderness were free assemblies. I, you know, I've added to a dozen different pages today. I spent a lot of time working on that and this is one of the last, uh, nice days that we're gonna have so I should have got out more but somebody took my truck early this morning and they haven't got it back. Yet, so I ended up not going out and doing much work uh, outside. But uh, the next few days are going to be like snowing us in. So, other than going out and feeding the sheep and the the cows out in the field, I'm I'm going to be pinned here to my keyboard, uh, trying to bring a lot of our pages uh, at preparing you into a cohesive, interactive study program for all of the Bible. And we've got a lot of studies out there now that we've already put together and uh, they could be of great value to you. And uh, our podcasts which you can get at lots of different podcast outfits will Spotify and uh, all the different, it will, whoever you go to for a regular podcast, most people with a smartphone can find our podcast at Keys to the Kingdom and uh, with Brother Gregory, you just search for that. You should be able to find us and uh, start listening to him. Because there is a pearl in every program. <laughs> I hide those pearls in those programs. If you start listening, we will. it, it could start altering the way you think. And of course, that's what repentance is, is changing the way you think. So anyway, let's get into Exodus. We actually have three hours scheduled for this program. It's a new thing with the station. They, they've given us a whole three hours to uh, broadcast on. I don't know if I can do three hours. Uh, it, it will be an awful long day by the time I get to the end of that. But if you call in with good questions... Uh, towards the end, we will extend the regular hour broadcast into 
the next hour. Otherwise, we will just terminate the show and uh, there'll be dead air. But uh, so we have the time, we have the resources to do it. Uh, but you have to be a part of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And one of the ways to do that is to ask questions. And, of course, we see people asking Jesus questions. And uh, that, of course, also was something that was when Paul was giving his so-called sermons. You know, actually, when he was walking down the beach over a long distance from one port to the next, Whole crowds followed him, and they were asking questions and having conversations. So this is your opportunity to have those conversations. But we're going to start off with Exodus 2 right now, uh, so that we can add this to our whole recordings of Exodus going through that study. And so it begins with the birth of Moses, and it says in verse 1 of Exodus 2, And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him for three months. The, the idea of this good or goodly child comes from a word tetvet uh, beit, which uh, means good or pleasant or agreeable, but it actually can mean a lot more. It's a good thing. It's something for the welfare. It, it's, it's something that can uh, bring prosperity uh, to people. It, the tet is an Introversion words that means to conceal, uh, that it contains a concealed power of good, a paradoxical, uh, power of good and evil. And so that is the beginning of the word. Then they have a vav, which is a connecting or, or, or dividing word. And the other word is be it. Be it has to do with the dwelling or house. And as we talked about this morning, that when you read in the New Testament, where they talk about Moses being this uh, exceedingly fair, it actually meant that he was a god of the city. And what did that mean? Because uh, when he was born, he's just born to this these Levite parents. He wasn't the god of the city. But there was something in him. There was some ability in him there was some uniqueness about him and his mother recognized it probably his father recognized it too and even though there was a great deal of pressure to limit the amount of male children born to the Jews or to the Israelites who were living there in uh, Goshen probably in the area of Averis which is now being excavated Fascinating excavation. We talked about that this morning. You can look that up. Uh, you can look that up on our page about Moses uh, at Preparing You, and it will tell you more. But there was something special about this child, and actually, if you, the, there were rumors that Moses actually had two horns on his head. They weren't symmetrical horns like devil horns or anything, but lumps on his head. And if you look at the statue of Michelangelo. He has those lumps up on his head. Now, whether he did or not, I don't know. But another individual known in history also had these two unusual lumps on their head, and they were known as the two-horned one. And 
that was the the guy who had conquered all the known world by the time he was like 18 years old. Uh, that was Alexander the Great. And for some reason, and actually there's also writings that says that Paul had these same unusual lumps on their forehead uh, that main, meant that they had they were going to be special people, very knowledgeable, very intelligent, uh, literally geniuses. But for some reason or other, uh, whether that's true or not, but it's an interesting anecdote to studying the Bible, but his mother thought he was special. <laughs> and so she did not put him out and expose him but she actually kept him secret. And again, we've talked about that this morning. You can go listen to the, the morning programs, and uh, which we will send out to the network. Everybody should be a member of the network. And they will eventually appear on the, the web pages about Moses and Exodus at Preparing You. But she fed him up for three months as he was growing. And there's a significance to that three months in traditions. That, you know, a child born in Rome, for instance, it was usually born, the the husband wasn't in the same room when they were born. If they were wealthy people, other, you know, midwives and stuff took care of that process. But when the child was born, a midwife would bring the child out, especially male children, and lay them at the feet of the father of the household, the head of the household. And if he picked them up, that child became an heir to everything that the father had. If he did not pick him up, that child would not be considered an heir. But they had to actually physically do the rituals that some so many witnesses could say, yes, he accepted that child as his child. And so the fact that Moses was raised up in the house of these two members of the Levi family meant that he was a Levi. He was accepted as a Levi and son of his father. But then it, it goes on to tell us, after she raised him up for the three months in, in, in verse 3 of this second chapter, and when she could not longer hide him, so we know that she was hiding him, that's specifically the word for hiding, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid him in the flags of the rivers. That's like the tule reeds of the river. And uh, she just set him adrift. Now, supposedly, his sister was watching, stood afar off. That's what it says in verse 4. To it that would be done to him, to find out what would be done to him. And it, it was dangerous to put a child out there in the water. And But that's what they decided to do, and I can only believe that they were led to do this. Because along comes in verse 5, And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Out into the river. Her her maid went out and got this floating ark. You know, it, it would have to be almost totally encased. 
because you don't want snakes crawling in there and all the bugs that would be in there in this tropical paradise. There's always lots of bugs and snakes in tropical paradises. And uh, so she went out and fetched it and brought it in to shore nearby. And actually, uh, I mentioned David Roll this morning in, in some of his uh, work. He believes he knows this exact spot uh, where this took place. And uh, she pulled this in and found a child. Well, according to what we know of history of at least one woman that was part of the royal house of the pharaoh, that was during the period of the time of Tutankhamen the first. She was the daughter of Tutankhamen the first, and her husband at one time was Tutankhamen the second. And uh, but she was the rightful heir to Tutankhamen the first. That she had lost a child. She didn't ever bear a male heir. She had lost a child, and here she finds a child in the river, and she adopts that child. Now, she supposedly had another child uh, that was a female child, but a female could not technically inherit the throne. It would have to be a male that would sit on the throne. The female would not, it's not like England where a female can sit on the throne. But anyway, as we go on farther in, uh, that she sees, she has this compassion on the Hebrew, uh, that this is one of the Hebrew children, she has compassion on it. And she says, Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? Now this is the sister of Moses talking to the Pharaoh's daughter. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. So now the mother continues to nurse her own son in the house of Pharaoh. Uh, and help is help raising as a nursemaid this unique child, this Moses. And the Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Now that word Moses at that time was the name for Tutankhamen Moses I, Tutankhamen Moses II, Tutankhamen Moses III. And it is my contention that I believe that Tutankhamen Moses III, and this is an educated guess, that Tutankhamen Moses III was the actual Moses of the story of the Exodus that we will see much later after Moses is fully grown, goes to Midian, and comes back again. Uh, The next part of this Exodus 2 is Moses flees to Midian. 
And it begins with verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong in this argument, this this conflict between these two Hebrews, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And And he said... Who made thee prince and judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now, we can look at that word fear in the Hebrew and known. Now, this is, this is part of the Pentateuch. This isn't the rendition of Stephan or Pliny or any of these other people or Philos who wrote about some of these things in their own histories. But this is this is what Moses supposedly wrote down. So it would lead us, as we're reading the text, to believe that he could be arrested and put in jail for what he did. But yet we just read that he was the son of the daughter of Pharaoh by adoption. Uh, we read elsewhere that Moses had learned the arts of sciences of the Egyptians. He had learned uh, the history of the Egyptians. He had learned military tactics of the Egyptians. And if he is who I think he is, he also understood astronomy and architecture. And so he was highly prized. And even though he did this thing where he killed the the uh, taskmaster or the Egyptian... The idea that he feared being arrested and thrown into jail or put to death because he did this, knowing the Ma'arat, the laws of Egypt at that time, which we have copies of the laws of Egypt at that time, that he probably was not in great danger of being arrested and put to death. But what he was in danger of is becoming a tyrant. And this is a theme throughout the life of Moses. Not to exercise authority. Not to force other people. Not to to become that tyrant who could just kill people by the thousands like Marcus Aurelius did. Uh, because he didn't like what they were doing. Or like Constantine did. Constantine, who supposedly was a Christian, became a Christian. But he actually, what he was doing was starting another church, a lot like Christianity, but not. Because he was killing people. He was killing his own partners. He was killing his partner's families. He was killing whole villages well after the time he supposedly became a Christian. And they even write about the fact that Constantine had to put on sackcloth and do penance because he had done these terrible things of killing thousands of people and confiscating all of their property, etc. Uh, but was it really him? Because there is a great history of Roman emperors when they had to do things that they didn't really want to do, they got a double ganger to pretend to be there. <laughs> and the double ganger did what 
that we the uh, the uncomfortable tasks that were put before them, like stand on the balcony for hours at a time and wave to the people, and uh, that that has been a common practice throughout history to have some double ganger do that, somebody who looks like them, so that they don't actually have to sit there and do that. But anyway, back to uh, Exodus two. Verse 15, now when the Pharaoh heard this thing, now the Pharaoh, which Pharaoh are we talking about? Because during the life of Moses, if the Moses is the one I think he is in Egyptian history, there were at least three Pharaohs. And so there was a Pharaoh heard this thing. He sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So, I would suspect the Pharaoh they're talking about at that particular time was Tutankhamen. Moses the second was the son of a concubine <laughs> to Tutankhamen the first. It was. Uh, Hatshepsut, who was the actual only living heir of Tutankhamen the first, by a legitimate union, but anyway, this is the way kingdoms get clouded. Uh, but she, being a woman, couldn't really sit on the position. And if you read our history of Moses, we go through why she did sit there anyway. And what another thing that I believe is actually the case. But it's not, I don't require anybody else to believe it. But there was something very interesting about Hepzibah. She was extremely philanthropic in the time that she was sitting in the position of Pharaoh. Now, the, why I say she was sitting in the position of Pharaoh because when Tutankhamen the third inherited the throne technically inherited the throne because of the death of Tutankhamen the second. Tutankhamen the third was only two years old. So he did not take the throne. There would have to be a regent who ruled in his stead. And that regent appears to be Hatshepsut. And to some degree, somebody else by the name of Sinemut. And Sinemut is an interesting character. And one of the candidates for the actual Moses uh, that was at that time. And now historians are going to argue this, and they will probably argue it until you get to ask Moses in person. But again, we don't want people to get lost in all these details and the pieces of the puzzle that are fascinating and interesting to follow. We want you to see the principles of what Moses was actually going to be teaching the people. What was going to make a difference in the relationship of the people that allowed them to move from a state of being in the bondage of Egypt to free men under God, who owned themselves, were not owned by some Pharaoh, some Caesar, some Nimrod, some governmental entity where they had become a human resource or merchandise, but every man was returned to his family and to his possessions. It was the ultimate division of power in a one form of government. In the United States, we have a division of power, the legislative branch, the uh, the uh, judicial branch, 
the executive branch, and they would call that the division of power, and it was set up by the Constitution of the United States, and where the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and the executive branches were endowed with certain powers, certain uh, authorities. And they were endowed by those authority by the Constitution and agreeing to the terms of the Constitution. But before they were endowed with anything, man was endowed by his creator, by the law of nature and nature's God. Well, the Israelites in Egypt did not have access to all those rights that they were endowed with because they had consented to the Pharaoh back during the famine and then they had participated in systems that normally would have degenerated the people and certainly did, we talked about that this morning, degenerated the Egyptians. And so the Pharaoh got this bright idea that he was going to oppress the Israelites, put extra rigorous servitude upon the to crafts of state. They say the word they use there is subtly. They will use these means by which to oppress the Israelites. But the more they oppressed them, the stronger they got. And somehow or other, their cries during this oppression went up to God and God said, well, now it's time to teach them the rest of the story. And so that's what we want to find out by going through Exodus, is find out what did the people have to learn to become free souls under God. So we've only got a few more verses here, but the priests of Midian is this section. starts with verse 16. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came, they just call them shepherds, came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flocks. So somehow or other, he stood up to these other shepherds on their behalf, so that and he drew water for the flocks of these seven daughters. And when they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? Because evidently they run into this problem on a regular basis. It probably wasn't just like what we see in the movie Ten Commandments where Moses comes with his staff and knocks these guys in the head and all that. But anyway, the reality is is somehow or other he helped water their flocks, which is a, an interesting thing if you understand the customs. Normally men do not do the work of women. And that would not be appropriate in the eyes of many. But like we see in the, the New Testament, uh, we talk about a man carrying water uh, is stopped by the apostles and said that their master needs a place to have the Passover. And he goes and arranges a place. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that was an Essene house. Because the Essenes, the men would do jobs like hauling water and fetching water. They they did not separate the duties of the household into male and female. Uh, they uh, They respected women and they respected women's rights and saw women just as important in the scheme of the family as men. They had different roles often, 
but one was not to oppress the other. And I always say, if you want to oppress a society and set a society up for being oppressed, first you oppress the women, which is what we see going on in places like Iran. They oppress the women, and they themselves have now become a terribly oppressed people under totalitarian dictators that are just draining the life out of the Iranian people. But it's because we institute certain ideas. Culture matters. So, anyway, they go on to say in verse 19, And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherd. Now, that sounds more like what we see in in the movie Ten Commandments. And also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. So, this is this is very telling to Raoul that this is a, this is a special kind of guy. And so in verse 20 we see, And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Where is this guy? And why is it that ye have left that man somewhere else? This guy's this guy special. Call him, that he may eat bread with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Sipporah, his daughter, as a wife. And she, and he said unto his daughters, oh no, I I jumped. (laughs) And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And we can explore that later. But I want to get through these last few verses so that we have time for calls. And then we can go into some of the explanations of what we're actually reading here. Because we're going to reach into other books and other contexts of the Bible to see how all these pieces actually fit together. So in verse 23 it says, And it came to pass... In the process of time, that the king of Egypt died. So now that would lead me to believe that the pharaoh that actually wanted to kill him was not Tutankhamen the third. So, so this is how it works: is that you, you know, and, and even David uh, Roll, who is a great uh, Egyptologist. Looks at a lot of things, he finds a piece over here, and he says, well, this maybe fits here. And then he finds a piece over here, and he says, well, this may fit here. But then all of a sudden, he will discount a piece, because he says, well, the timeline's not just right. And he's still exploring, and that's fine. But what you want to get is, what is the real message of this story? It's very clear that when Moses wrote this, he jumped through... This story, in a very rapid pace, there's evidence that Moses did not go straight to Midian. That he went elsewhere for a while and then went back to Midian. Now, is that true? Did he go down to Cush for a while and then come back to Midian? Or had he already gone to Cush on by the time he killed the Egyptian? What actually, the chronology is very difficult. Because he doesn't say on this day he went out or on this day he killed the Egyptian. These are events that are important enough to move along the story. But then when we try to get the bigger picture, we have to take bits and pieces from here and there. So, the Tutankhamen II was not real popular 
You know, he's out gallivanting around with concubines. He wasn't really faithful. He was, you know, he's wealthy. And he had power. And there were people that wanted to win, you know, like when you got to be the pharaoh, it's like winning the lottery. Suddenly you got relatives and friends coming out of the woodwork everywhere because everybody wants a favor. We see that with modern government. The more power you put in the hands of government, in whatever branch of government you have, uh, or however you divide it, because they had the, the same idea of division of power in the Roman Republic. But originally in the Republic, 90% of all the power was in the hands of the people. It wasn't a democracy, it was a republic. The majority vote couldn't take away the rights of some individual or some minority in Rome. They could, it couldn't do it because rights were vested in individuals, not in groups. Now that changed over time and understanding how that changes is understanding how the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt again and why the people all over the world are degenerating again into perfect savages and why once more we see monarchs, kings, despots, and tyrants rising up who don't care about the people, who actually can look at the people and think, how can I eliminate Three and a half billion people. Or maybe five billion people. We need to eliminate five billion people to save the planet from global warming. There are people who actually think that and say that. They've said it out loud for decades now. Uh, are they in power? Well, if they got into power, they're not going to tell you <laughs> they're in power. But there are people who think that way. But if you create offices of power, they will be drawn to those offices of power. Because they're not like Moses. They want to exercise authority one over the other. They desire power and are corrupted by it. And no matter how much power you give them, they will want more power. But the real problem isn't that you give them power. When you give them power, you give them responsibility. And when you give them responsibility, you're weakened. Because... You're not exercising that responsibility, which is why we saw this morning in Exodus 1, the Egyptian people were actually getting weaker and not getting stronger as a people. They were in the same bondage as the people, uh, the Israelites. They all owed 20% of their labor to government. But they were starting to oppress with rigor the Israelites, with the hope of making them weaker and weaker, but they didn't understand that that actually made them stronger and stronger. So as you see more and more oppression coming from whatever government you're in, whether you're in Australia or Europe or whatever, know this, that some people will be made stronger by that. But understanding the principles of the kingdom, the natural law, the 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 wisdom of people like David and Paul and Polybius and Plutarch, uh, and even some of the Stoics, understanding the wisdom and also understanding where some of them strayed from that wisdom and became foolish, like Saul, King Saul. Look up King Saul. We have a whole article on King Saul. What did King Saul do that was foolish that meant his kingdom would not stand? And that same 
thing that he did would eventually be the deceitful meats, the dainties that weakens the people. And they talk about it in Samuel. They talk about it in Kings. They talk about it in Proverbs. They talk about it in Psalms. They talk about it in the New Testament. But they don't talk about it in the modern churches. And we need to understand what those precepts are. But you have to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And that comes by the blessing of God. And that blessing of God comes, and I'll give you a hint now, when you hear the cries of others. When you hear the cries of others, God will hear your cries. And we've talked about this in numerous podcasts and and when we go through other uh, parts of the Bible, other books of the Bible, you know, uh, 1 Samuel, that God says, I'm not going to hear your cries. Why is he not hearing your cries? And then why all of a sudden now when we read verse 23, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. Now they have that word bondage in there twice. Is it the same both times? Is there, and what do they mean by the reason of their bondage? Because they have that phrase, reason of the bondage, and reason of the bondage twice. They repeat it twice. But their cries are heard. And in verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So, God said, I'm not gonna hear You, if you decide to have a king, they have a king, Pharaoh. You know, he he said that in 1 Samuel, but the principle still applies in every time. But now all of a sudden he is hearing. What changed? God heard their groaning. In verse 25 he says, And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Now we know God has no, is no respecter of persons. But he looked upon the children as individual children. And amongst those individual children, he had respect for some of them. So something was going on in this area. And I believe that as they continue to excavate the area of Avaris, they're going to find evidence of that. We certainly see evidence of it with the mother and father of Moses, who, even though the statute said, throw them in the river... She hid him and nursed him up for three months. And then when he it was three months old, she threw him in the river, but she put him in a basket where he would survive. She knew to do that. Why did she know to do that? Did, did she have divine revelation from God to know to do that? How did she know that this was going to work out in favor of Moses? I think she was an exceptional woman. Just like I believe Elizabeth was an exceptional woman. And even her husband was an exceptional man. Although not always as faithful as he needed to be. But that made John the Baptist more effectual. And the fact that she's nursing him up and taking care of him and everything. She's passing on certain things to Moses 
that he was going to have to learn again for himself, but he would have a better chance of learning it because he was raised up by his mother and even his sister was there uh, through this whole episode and his sister will play into the role of things uh, to come. But I believe that the presence of Moses' mother and her interaction with Hesepsut had an effect on what Hesepsut decided to do with her life in the days to come. So, we have 10 minutes of the regular uh, scheduled program, so I can, uh, but I don't think it'll take that long. So, understanding this whole idea of Exodus coming out of Egypt, coming out of the bondage of Egypt, and understanding that everybody, if you're in France, if you're in England, if you're a Presbyterian, if you're a Methodist, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're a Jehovah Witness, if you're a Muslim, if you're uh, agnostic, uh, and you live in Sweden, if you live in Norway, if you live in uh, Romania, if you live in Australia, if you live in New Zealand, and all those countries, everywhere, you are probably paying more than 20% of your labor to the government. <laughs> and that is the bondage of Egypt. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament not to go back there, but it tells us in the New Testament we will go back to that place where we are merchandise, where we're back into the bondage, we're entangled again in the elements of the world, that we're back in the yoke of bondage. It talks about this in the New Testament. And that will come about because of covetous practices. Because we desire benefits at the expense of our neighbor. And that covetous practice will bring you back into bondage. Now I've written a whole book on exactly how that takes place. And actually there's 15 different chapters. Each chapter shows you a different way in which you go back into bondage. Where you, your right to dominion. On this planet, your right to own your property, the right to own your children, the right to own yourself, the right to own your labor, becomes compromised because of the institutions that you set up for yourself. Because of the civil law, Roman law, civil law, Roman civil law are the same systems of jurisprudence. And civil law is the law that you make for yourself. And civil law requires some form of consent. And that consent can be specific consent or consent by what you choose to do. You know, if I, I've given this example before, if I'm starving out in the uh, desert and I come across a goat and has a collar on it, I know it belongs to somebody, doesn't belong to anybody around here, nobody owns goats hardly around, down near Paisley some people own goats. But I'm starving. I'm going to die if I don't eat something. And I kill that goat and I, I cut it up and I start roasting it and I eat that and that nourishment saves me. Have I stolen the goat? Well, what if I have the collar tied around a string around my neck in hopes that when I find the owner of that goat, I take the hide too so I can identify and so that I can find the owner of that goat, I intend to pay them back. I haven't stolen the goat. 
I didn't return it, but I was out in the middle of the desert, didn't know where it go, and it didn't know where it was going. It was lost, and pretty soon the coyotes would eat it, but I ate it. I did not steal it if I intend to pay them back. And, of course, I have a contract to pay them back. I took their goat. I have a contract. According to the Ten Commandments, I have to return that goat to its owner. I couldn't do it without killing the goat and eating it, but I have to turn the value of it. But I won't be counted a thief, according to the law of Moses. If I was a thief, I have to I have to give that person two goats. <laughs> but if I'm not a thief, I only have to give them the value of one goat. This is, you know, I'm giving you this example so that you understand the law of nature. But if I actually conspire... Where, you know, like I, I take uh, a, a little couple wafers of alfalfa and I know where there's a weak spot in my neighbor's fence and I go and throw the alfalfa down there when it's snowy out and the goat, he gets through that fence to get that alfalfa and then I, I throw a little bit more out and I keep leading the goat out into the desert and then I suddenly say, oh, goat's lost. I guess it's my goat. <laughs> I have coveted my neighbor's goods. And through through my efforts, I have gotten away from my neighbor what belonged to my neighbor. (laughs) That's a violation of the law of nature. It will have consequences. What we call the wrath of God will come into play. That you will end up paying a price for your conniving to steal your neighbor's goods. Because if it's if it's okay for you to take your, you know, covet your neighbor's goats, it's okay for your neighbor to covet you and what you have. And the the problem with that is there's always way more neighbors than there are you. And if they all get to covet what you have, soon you will have nothing. Which is why they tell you in the Bible with the little metaphoric statement, the little parable, the little almost allegory. Be careful you do not bite one another lest ye be devoured. Because that is the consequences of coveting your neighbor's goods, is that you will lose everything if you covet your neighbor's goods. If you go to men who exercise authority to get away from your neighbor what you think you ought to have, this is why Jesus says, you know, go with your neighbor and make peace. If you have a conflict, don't take them to court. Go and try to make peace. Now, I'm not saying nobody can go to court. I'm just saying, I'm trying to express a principle here of how the law of nature works. And if you don't understand these principles, it used to be people studied this. This is what the Stoics were trying to do because they believed in the law of nature. They went and studied these principles. But something happens to an individual where their eyes are darkened. Scales come over their eyes. And they talk about this all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament, where your eyes will be darkened and you won't see certain elements of the law of nature, of the law of God. Because remember, the law of nature, divine will, the will of God, are convertible phrases. They are the same system. Now, your version of it may not be the same as my version of it, but that's your opinion. That's one of the things that Stoics always said is that You have an opinion, I have an opinion, but the truth is not subject to the opinion. Which we've talked about before in our series on the law of nature, is that if the world is round, 
no decree of parliament can make it flat. If the world is flat, no executive order of the king can make it round. (laughs) Whatever nature is, it is independent of our opinion. Our opinion does not change the law of nature, which is what makes it the law of nature. It's what makes the will of God the will of God, is that it is not subject to our opinion. But when you reduce religion to what you think about God, which is what Google has done, and what modern churchianity has done, they have reduced religion to what you think about God, when just 200 years ago, religion was the pious performance of a duty. Not only to God, but to my, your fellow man. You know, like the comedy routine of George Carlin. He talks about, you know, God is this all-powerful, all-supreme, all-potentate, uh, uh, supreme being. But uh, he can't handle money. He always needs money. Because <laughs> the churches are always asking for money. But the reality is, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your money at all. He doesn't even need you to give. He doesn't need you to be charitable. You need to be charitable. Because the consequences of being charitable have benefit to you. Just says the consequences of being selfish also have a consequence to you. But we will not call that consequence a benefit. We will call that consequence a bad thing, you know, uh, a curse. We will call that consequence a curse. But what's a benefit, what's a curse, that's all a matter of opinion, your point of view and how you look at things. I don't hear any questions coming. <laughs> the next chapter will be chapter 3 of Exodus. And eventually, hopefully, we will get to a point where we begin to understand the real uh, message, the maps and meanings of, uh, of Exodus and what Moses was trying to tell us when he wrote down these stories and these somewhat histories of his own life and of Genesis and of Leviticus and all of the Pentateuch and we'll get a better and better idea of what is true and what is not true about the gospel of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if we find out what is true and we pursue it and become doers of the word, we too may become free souls under God. We did get a question, so I include that here on the end of the show. And uh, it was about, the, I guess, the birds and the bees and the squirrels. And we'll uh, we'll play that now. If people think they know somebody who would like to challenge some of the things we say or maybe agree with some of the things that we say or ask us questions about some of the things that we are saying about the biblical text, like we we have a great many of the epistles already covered. We're going to go through Exodus and hopefully we'll go through, uh, we've gone through some of Acts, we'll go through Acts, we'll go through the different uh, Gospels and... Uh, Try to show you what the modern churches don't want to tell you because their eyes have been darkened. We were told by Jesus that many will say they're coming in my name, but I know them not because they're workers of iniquity. 
And many people think they're born again, but they're still coveting their neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. And it tells you right there in John that that that's darkness. That's that's not right. That's wrong. I mean, it even tells you in the epistles that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is covetousness. So, all the people that are still coveting their neighbor's goods and their labor and their property through men who exercise authority, they're practicing idolatry. They're idolaters. They're going to public religion, not the pure religion of the early church. And we go through the whole history of the early church. This is why we've made so many recordings available, so many articles available. And we we go through and we're quoting the Bible all over the place so that you can see that this is the message that was in the Old Testament. This is the message in the New Testament. So anyway, everybody who's listening... Everybody who thinks this is a viable or important message to get out there because Egypt collapsed shortly after the Israelites left. Probably partly because some of the army pursued them and didn't make it across the sea where they crossed over at, which is another whole part of the story which we'll get to in subsequent chapters. But... Because of the fact that this is what happens to the systems. Jesus talked about being, you know, friends with the unrighteous mammon. Because it will make you more suitable for more righteous habitations. He didn't say don't pay your taxes, pay your taxes. But seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be provided unto you. We see bad things coming in the future. Uh, you need to repent, think differently. And the way you need to think is to think the way that Jesus Christ was telling you. And if you really understood Exodus and the Pentateuch, you would understand that Moses was telling you the same thing. Bringing these two witnesses together will allow you to learn the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Because those two songs are harmonious. And it isn't about being a Messianic Jew and and doing all the things that the Pharisees did. It's actually doing something completely different than what we see the Pharisees doing, what we see other religious groups at the time doing, and we see the early church doing. So anyway, do you have somebody who wants to come on or should come on? I'll let her on. You're on, Tiffany. Okay, Tiffany. Well, I forgot my question. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, we're we're all fumbling around here, so yeah, those little bees—they go out there and they, out any effort whatsoever, they make honey. <laughs> the, uh, same with the squirrels, you know, they go out and they gather nuts and with all effortless, you know. It's like um, we were once a people that had these instincts too, and I just wondered if like anybody would want to take a shot at. Well, I wouldn't say. I, people disconnected from nature. Okay. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that squirrels do it without effort uh, or bees do it without effort. I think they still have the expenditure of energy. They burn calories. They, uh, uh, But it is, they are motivated to do it. It's 
It's well, that's right. I didn't mean effort. I'm sorry. Right, right. I know. And I'm, I'm just clarifying the, the language a little bit. But by their nature, they're going to go out and gather nuts. And their birds are going to nest. And they're going to breed. What happens with mankind, he has a conflict. He has lots of conflicts in his mind and in his heart. And these conflicts cause him to do things like abort millions of children every year. There are no animal species out there that want to abort their young, generally speaking. When an animal starts to get to the point where they will not take care of their young, they are ready to die. And they begin to fall out. I, I'm a keeper of flocks and a keeper of herds. And I can tell when an animal starts to neglect its youth, it's it's on the verge of it needs to be turned into hamburger and mutton. <laughs> Because they have, they have worn out their instincts. But generally speaking, animals don't have this conflict that we see in people where they, most animals don't go to war with each other unless there is some particular reason. We go to war all the time. But uh, not to say that nature is full of a bed of roses or anything. But what gets in the way of our natural human responsibility, our what is referred to in the Testament as eternal life, this eternal desire for life that means that we care about the next generation as much as we care about our own generation. That's natural to mankind. And what happens to places like Egypt, where the people did not have to take care of one another. There was a government welfare system the dainties of the pharaoh. And they had to pay the pharaoh, but they didn't have to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith that Jesus talks about. They didn't have to deal with mercy. That that was the government's job, to deal with mercy. They didn't have to protect their neighbor from crime. That That was the government's job. They had, you know, men with spears to go around and you know, they had forts set up to protect the people. And these support forts were supported by taxation. But in Israel and in some of the city-states of, of Greece, they didn't have that central government. They had thousands of individuals who came together to defend one another. And what happens is that awakens those and keeps alive those natural instincts of dominion. Because you know you can't keep your dominion unless you care about the dominion of your neighbor. You you can't keep your possessions unless you care about the possessions of your neighbor. Because you can't, you know, you can't defend yourself against 20 thugs that might come over the hill and want to kill you and steal all your stuff. But if you have... 20 or 100 or 500 Israelites who care about you as much as they care about their own stuff and you've cultivated those social bonds in a free society through altars of clay and stone. People who come in for the first time won't understand. Those altars of clay and stone were institutions of charity that helped take care of the needy of society. And in doing so through choice and charity, exercising that individual choice and charity, 
you create those social bonds of a free society. If you turn those jobs over to the governments of the world, those social bonds degenerate. They disintegrate. They they decay. Because the same as if you went in a weightless environment and had no stress on your muscles, your muscle mass would begin to shrink. And the muscle mass needed for a free society shrinks when you have a system that allows you not to be responsible for your neighbor, not to be your brother's keeper. So the more you get away from that, the weaker your society gets. The individual squirrel, he's not in a big society. He's just an individual goes out and gathers his nuts. And that's fine for a squirrel. There, There's a pigeon called a passenger pigeon. And nobody really quite understands what happened. But passenger pigeons used to just cover the skies all over America. That They would literally be like clouds of these pigeons. And the Indians depended on these pigeons a lot for food. They could literally, when the clouds flew over, they could fire an arrow up into the clouds and they were going to hit at least one pigeon. And they could eat. They would not starve because of all these pigeons that flew everywhere. They didn't compete with the humans' food, but the people could eat them and do fine. And early Americans hunted these things. Of course, we we didn't shoot an arrow up. We hunted them and hunted them and hunted them. And what happened, there came a point where there was so few of these, they didn't fly in these massive clouds anymore. And they evidently needed those massive clouds to stimulate their their desire to live. They needed that as a part of their ecosystem. The cloud of pigeons was essential. When they got down to a few hundred pigeons or a few thousand pigeons, they just literally died out. They weren't killed out. They just died out because they didn't have the environment necessary to stimulate their existence. It's the same thing with a free society. If we do not gather together and every week, like Justin the Martyr describes, gather together, not with the intention of singing and pretending to love Jesus, but actually gather together so that those that have extra help those that don't have enough to get us through these dirts. If we don't do that, we will lose something of our humanity. If we try to just be a little squirrel out there and gather the nuts to so that we have provisions, you know, our little cabin full of dried beans and wheat and and survival foods, we will lose part of our humanity. Part of what we need as a species to survive whatever comes. But what's happened? Why aren't we doing that? Well, we have been sold a bill of goods that it's okay to covet our neighbor's goods. And see, that, that letting that idea in first, and that's what happened in America, that idea crept in probably first with public education, in a big way, with public education, even though it was already creeping in when, you know, probably 70% of the people were educated outside of public schools. Maybe 70 to 80 percent were educated outside of public schools. And about 80 to 90 percent of the financing for public schools was free will offerings. 
It wasn't taxation. It was free will offerings. It was very seldom was the majority of public education supported by taxes. It was almost always supported by charity of the local community. Most public schools were started through churches. But when we began to accept the idea that it was okay to desire those benefits at at the expense of our neighbor through taxation, through men who exercise authority, it began to alter us. It began, that's where the scales came through. That's where our eyes were darkened and where we couldn't see it. And before you know it, that grew and then there was social security and there was, we wanted a fire department and we wanted a police department and we taxed our neighbor to get it. Started mostly in cities. I knew people all the way up into the 60s who had no property tax on their land. And they finally, the year after they obtained, this was in the 1960s, they didn't even have a social security number. And and they lived in California. And they went and got a social security number. And then suddenly their property went on the tax rolls. Uh, within a year, maybe two years at the outside. And they thought, like, why is that? It was a very small amount of taxes. They were a pretty rural area. But there's a connection here. There's a process. We've been moving away from the kingdom because we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. That's why Christ said, first fear not, and then forgive, and then love thy neighbor as thyself. And you have to do those and practice those on a regular basis. Like I said, when people form a congregation and there are some members of their congregation that are maybe sometimes a little obnoxious or have ideas that we don't really agree with, that's an opportunity. That's an opportunity for forgiveness. It's an opportunity to turn your own light up as a vessel of the Holy Spirit. And in that process... We regenerate as a people in the process of coveting our neighbor's goods, like Polybius says, because of our desire for benefits and the becoming accustomed to receiving them at, at the expense of others and depending for our livelihood on the property of others. We degenerate. That's what happens. We break down as a, as a son of Adam. We get farther and farther from the nature that God created us as. You know, you could probably take a squirrel and put him in a cage and just feed him nuts year-round. They're always there. He doesn't have to gather them. They, you know, he just pulls a little lever and the nut drops out. You raise him like that for three generations in a cage where all the squirrels raised in that cage for three generations just... All I have to do is touch that lever and another nut drops down. Then you take those squirrels out and you put them in the wild. What do you think will happen? Now, he's always been in a, in, in a controlled climate. He didn't have any winter. He, he didn't even have any hot summers. He always had water. He always had food. He didn't have to store. He didn't have to do any of that stuff. But now you take him out and put him in the wild. Will he make it? Will he survive? No. He probably won't. He might. He might rise to the occasion because he's much more instinctual than we are. We're, we're very intellectual. We've been eating of the tree of knowledge for so long. 
we don't even depend upon our instincts. We don't even know what our instincts are. In my family and with me, I've always wanted to work. When they offered me free benefits from the government one time when I was unemployed and I'd come back to an area where I owned some property or had a legal title to property, I came back there and said, you know, do you guys have any jobs? I went down to the state employment agency, which actually was a county office. It was just a little side office, small town. And they said, well, we don't have any jobs, but we got some free money we can give you. And I thought, like, free money? What the heck is free money? <laughs> and and he explained, well, they have government funds and all this stuff, and they I, I would be eligible for that, and they can get me a check. I don't know, it was a monthly check or every two weeks or something. And it, it amounted to quite a bit. And I wasn't broke. I figured I could find work. But... uh it was just foreign to me. And, you know, and I thought, well, where did the government get the money? You know, and of course, that's a no-brainer. They, they got it from my neighbors. <laughs> I taxed them. And I said, well, I don't I don't need that. I don't want that. But, oh, you're entitled to it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't want that. And they, they were rather upset with me because I wouldn't fill out the papers to get it. it. was They said they would even fill out the papers for me. I just had to sign it. And they would apply for me. They had somebody who would fill out the papers for me. But it was against my nature. If I had done that, it would have changed my nature. It would have opened a door, a Pandora's box. And that's what we see all over the United States, all over England, all over uh, Europe, all over now in South America and in and uh, all these places that people are becoming more and more dependent upon these men who exercise authority one over the other. And we've betrayed the nature that God put in us to begin with. You do it little bit by little bit. You don't do it all at once. And if I, I suppose you could do the same with bees, although they're much even simpler than I said that you did with a squirrel. We know we, this is how you domesticate an animal. That you, you, you take a wild pig and you put him in a pen and he doesn't have to rut for his food that's just there all the time. Two or three generations later, that wild pig isn't growing tusks. He's becoming less and less aggressive. He is more responsive to the sound of the feed bucket than he is uh, to the sound of predators. He doesn't have to worry about predators. You're protecting no predators uh, whatsoever. So, what's happening? You're changing the nature of the pig. You're domesticating the pig. We're supposed to be free souls under God. We're not supposed to be domesticated pigs of the government. Yeah, they have a nature and they are faithful to their nature. We have been given enough enlightenment that we can betray our nature. Because we're supposed to have dominion. And if we betray that nature that God has given us and say, oh, we're going to decide for ourselves what is good and evil. We're going to exercise dominion over our brother. We're going to rule over our brother in order to get what we want. See, these are the temptations of Christ. It will change our nature. And, and we won't 
we won't even see the change. This is what happened to the Stoics. That and Polybius, who was a Stoic, was telling them 150 years, because he could see it coming. 150 years before Christ. Almost uh, 125 years before the first emperor. He was saying that when the masses, because of their appetite for benefit, become accustomed to receiving those benefits at the expense of others, it will alter them. It will change them. They won't even know it. And this, of course, is what happened to Marcus Aurelius. It's what happened to a lot of the other Stoics. And they began to accept that. And when Christ came along with this other message, like we see with Saturninus in the trial of the seven uh, Silitans who were martyred, when they tried to explain the simplicity of the kingdom, which, Mar- uh, which uh, Justin the Martyr had explained about uh, probably 50 years before, maybe 25 years before, in his uh, apology of Christianity, that we, we don't do it like you do. We don't covet our neighbor's goods. We create a system of welfare through charity alone. Just as one system degenerates the people, the other one regenerates the people. It changes them. You don't change yourself. You don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is why it is so important that individuals gather together, not with the perfect ideology, not with the perfect, you know, like we're all saints already. But we gather together and start to practice caring about others. We have a neighbor who is becoming today because they, they have been reduced to a point where they can't even drive safely at all. It's it's set in that bad. They're still great disposition. They still feed themselves, although we, we check on them every day and we take care of them that way. They're not a member of our congregations. I don't even, at this stage in their life, I don't even know if they could understand it. But we've done this with several elderly in the community. Because it's good for us to practice that charity. To take care of real people. Not just you know, uh, go through the motions of caring about other living creatures. We have to care about people because it it alters us. And so we have to take the time and the energy to do it because that's how we regenerate. That's how we fertilize the growth of the Holy Spirit in ourselves. And it's it, it's a constant challenge. So anyway, I hope I addressed that question. Uh, everybody join the network. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www 
www.hisholychurch.net 